Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. As Democrats be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. From Vice President Joe Biden now, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. What does it mean for the Democratic National Committee as they try to plan what to do? In an election year, also being drowned out by a pandemic, we will speak exclusively with Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez and then what it means for Democratic strategist Kevin Walling away in for how Biden can work to attract Bernie Sanders supporters. Or is it a lost cause? And the latest from President Trump as well. You can listen to his daily coronavirus task force briefing and plans to reopen the economy. Maybe, maybe as cities look to flatten the curve. A lot to get through. Guy Snodgrass is going to join us on the geopolitical implications of this as well. Very excited to talk to Guy. Jam-packed show. Again, we are awaiting President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing. You can catch that right here on Bloomberg 99.1 FM. Scheduled to begin in the 5.30 p.m. Eastern half hour but the big political yes political story of the day revolving around now the democratic presidential presumptive nominee joe biden it's been a minute right folks since we've led our our news program with with some political 2020 news but that is the news bernie sanders has bowed out and joe biden's the nominee and just earlier today i literally just got off air uh, on bloomberg television with DNC Committee Chairman Tom Perez. I asked him what it all means. Take a listen to our interview. Bernie Sanders is out. We now have a presumptive nominee. This is the start of the general election. Where does Chairman Perez take the DNC today? Well, uh, first of all, I want to commend Senator Sanders on the spectacular campaign that he's run. It's not only about uh, himself. It's about it's really about building a movement of opportunity for others. It's about making sure that everybody uh, can benefit uh, from the uh, economy, from an America that works for everyone. Uh, I, today is the beginning of uh, the general election campaign, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, we are working hard to make sure that we hand over to our nominee a Uh, really, really muscular infrastructure. That's what we've been working on for uh, the last uh, two years, and I'm confident and and proud of the fact that we're going to hand over to the vice president the most expansive campaign infrastructure the DNC has ever built uh, for a non-incumbent 
presidential candidate uh, in modern political history. Chairman Perez, really, how does, how does uh, the pandemic... Yeah. How does the pandemic influence your ability to create that infrastructure, especially when it comes to fundraising, for example? Well, it, it, uh, our tactics have changed, but our goals haven't. Uh, our, yes, we do a lot more work digitally. And, Kevin, over the last uh, three weeks, we've trained literally four or 5,000 uh, digital organizers. We've been, doing, we've been in the digital space for some time, and so we'll continue to do this. Uh, we are continuing to raise money aggressively uh, because we want to make sure that we can implement our our battleground buildup. We've already gotten uh, organizers and others in place in the key battleground states. And so, uh, yes, we're not knocking on doors. That, there's no doubt about that. But uh, we're, we're actively ramping up uh, our campaign uh, battleground infrastructure because uh, we know that we have 209 days till yeah. the election. And so we'll change our tactics, uh, but we're not going to change our goals, which is to win up and down the ballot. I was struck, and Chairman Perez, I was struck by uh, what you just said about not being able to knock on doors. I mean, even so, yesterday Wisconsin held a primary. As states decide to delay or to uh, postpone their primaries, we get closer and closer to that June 9th deadline for delegate selection. And so how are you, are you considering changing your rules at all for states to have primaries post that deadline in order uh, and that they'll get counted at the convention? Our rules and bylaws committee is going to, is already working carefully and closely with uh, the states that have been forced by this pandemic to change their uh, primary dates. And we'll continue to do that. Uh, and in the meantime, obviously, uh, we're, we're going to begin the process of working really closely uh, with the vice president so that uh, the momentum that he's built through his impressive run uh, all across, you know, north, south, east and west, uh, he has incredibly broad appeal. And uh, we will work with the states that haven't voted yet. We'll work with the states that have already voted. And we are going we are going to build. Uh, a, a remarkable general election infrastructure so that we can win not only the presidency, but we can win up and down the ballot. When it comes to the convention, it's already been delayed uh, to August. Is it realistic to think that an August convention, uh, a normal convention, so to speak, could be at play? Or will you have to consider things like delegates voting virtually? Well, I'm looking forward to August. You know, we, we moved the convention five weeks back uh, so that we can maximize the um, probability of success. I think that was a good move. It's been well-received. And our goal is to make sure we put on a, a really impressive show in Milwaukee where we showcase our values. We will make sure we have uh, safety as job one. We're not going to put our public health uh, heads in the sand, unlike... Uh, the other side. And at the same time, I'm confident that we can put on a, an exciting muscular convention where we uh, showcase our, our values, um, our nominee. And, and I, I look forward uh, to, uh, again, having the vice president uh, talk about his values, his commitment to everyday Americans as we move forward. And just very quickly, you want to tell us anything about who former Vice President Biden might be thinking about picking for his for his for his vice president? Well, I leave that up to uh, the vice president, and and I know whoever he picks <laughs> that 
she will be she. a um, she. remarkable yeah. partner, uh, and uh, and she will uh, be. He understands the role of the vice president uh, better than anyone, and so he will uh, pick someone who is uh, ready for service immediately. Will be a great compliment to him. Uh, I'm really yeah. excited about. I had the I had the privilege of working for the vice president with the vice yeah. president. And the American people, they trust him. They they know that he's looking out for them. He has their back. And this president, uh, We're gonna have Trump, to... unfortunately, has a knife in their back. That was Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez speaking exclusively with me earlier today on Bloomberg Television. President Trump also, also weighing in on the news of Bernie Sanders bowing out. He tweeted out, quote, Bernie Sanders is out. Thank you to Elizabeth Warren. If not for her, Bernie would have won almost every state on Super Tuesday. He had a follow-up tweet that said, can't see AOC plus three supporting Sleepy Joe. Coming up on the program, Democratic strategist Kevin Walling weighs in on all of the latest political uh, news. And we also are awaiting President Trump's uh President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Guy Snodgrass is going to call in as well for some some updates on the geopolitical front. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And here, I'll say it here first. House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters is going to be my guest tomorrow. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Happy Passover, folks, to those who celebrate during this especially Holy Week. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Some good news, some good news, the prognosis on the Bloomberg Terminal, I am reading Anthony Fauci, director of the U.S. National Institute for, of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said the start of a turnaround in the fight against the virus could come after this week. Uh, please, please. As President Donald Trump's, well, the terminal didn't write please. I just injected that. Not to, not to put too much of my opinion in this. As President Donald Trump's top health advisors develop medical criteria for reopening the U.S., Economy. We are on official standby for that briefing that Dr. Fauci will be attending along with President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. That's going to happen in the 5.30, the White House is saying, 5.30 half hour. So we, we you can listen to that literally right here on Bloomberg 99.1 FM. Joining us on the line, Democratic strategist Kevin Walling, who's all in for Joe Biden. Kev, first of all, how is how have you been impacted? Are you working from home or are they still sending you to Fox? Hey, Kevin, good to be with you. Uh, I'm mostly working from home. We've got um, some satellite uh, uh, offices for Fox in terms of still doing TV hits in, in the evenings and in the mornings as well. All right. Well, it's good to good to hear from you and uh, make sure you're staying healthy, staying safe. We appreciate the time. You heard my interview with Tom Perez. And one of the things that you know we just ran out of time on air with was how does – how, how do Joe Biden – and this is where I want to start with you. How do Joe Biden and President Trump at least agree what to agree on, one, from a China perspective, and two, from an economic perspective? Or is that just a wish-wash pipe dream and that they're just going to be going full steam ahead at each other in a couple of months? 
Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit of both uh, in terms of both being a wishwashy uh, pipe dream uh, or some actual substantial uh, uh, means of uh, of agreement. I thought it was interesting how they both characterized the call uh, that both of them had uh, yesterday. Of course, we saw reports that the vice president talked to President Trump uh, for about 15 minutes yesterday. Both were actually very supportive of one another in the readouts of the call. They didn't go into details, but of course, uh, it was interesting to see the tone in which. Both of them described the conversation. Uh, of course, you know, as Chairman Perez said, you know, we're 209 days away from the general election. Uh, the vice president campaigned very hard against uh, this administration, has been uh, campaigning very hard uh, now in this kind of new mode that we're in, campaigning from his basement satellite uh, studio, the vice president, uh, pointing out, not saying, of course, that the president is responsible for this virus, but pointing out the failures of this administration in terms of preempting uh, the virus, uh, its, its expansion, uh, and failing to provide but, the necessary materials throughout all this. But to inject myself in here just for a second, I mean, the polls suggest that it's largely been a polarizing issue in terms of who people blame. Or, or, when they pull preparedness and whether or not you feel the United States was, was adequately prepared, who do you blame? Left's blaming the right, the right's blaming the left. I, I think I was speaking about this earlier with my colleagues, Carol Maser and Jason Kelly, on uh, on their radio program, and one of the things that I'm I'm curious to get your perspective on, Kev, is if you go to a battleground state, let's pick Wisconsin, just because it was in the news yesterday. If you go to Wisconsin, to a portion of the state, just a small portion, but a battleground portion, that maybe fortunately was not as impacted by COVID-19, but still had to shut down because for a host of different reasons that the experts are saying had to happen. But if you if your hometown or your street didn't directly experience the health impacts of COVID-19, you sure as heck felt the economic impacts. So if you're Joe Biden, I mean, that's you're you're you have no choice but to tailor your argument. Right. I mean, this is the economic implications of this have definitely upended this race. Yeah, Kev, I think it's an excellent point. I mean, you look at uh, approval, disapproval of the president's response to COVID-19, and it tracks pretty much similarly to his overall job performance. Uh, so if you were a base supporter of the president, you're still with him, uh, even if you're experiencing the economic uh, ramifications, for example, of this virus pandemic uh, in society. Now, we'll see you know, what kind of legs uh, the economic indicators are heading into November. We, again, as we've talked many times, yeah, we've talked many times how quickly uh, society, the public, move on from crisis to crisis. I mean, again, you know, this president was impeached heading into the new year, and obviously no one is talking about that. Everyone's I can't believe that. I mean, you know, I, so, so uh, we collectively move on so quickly uh, as a country. Uh, so I think likely uh, we'll move on quicker on the health care front in terms of hopefully – Less lives lost. That's great news from the terminal, as you just read. Uh, but I think the economic situation will be mu- with us much longer and deeper than perhaps we saw in, in 2007, 2008 with that previous presidential election with the Great Recession. I hope you're wrong. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong, too. I, know. I hope I'm wrong, too. You know, to bring it back to a point, I mean, I was looking at my journal just from a couple of months ago. And no one saw this coming. I mean, there's just no there's one. no no one was talking about it. And and even my my oh my, how naive we all were, myself included, to think that a virus couldn't get out of China. Uh, and and let me ask you this: it, it, where 
how have you forget your political party affiliation for a second? How have political strategists based in Washington, D.C., how has your life, how has your job been turned upside down? And how do you even strategize? I mean, how, how do you do this? How do you, how do you, like Perez was saying, they've had to digitally train 4,000 people to help out from volunteers. But I mean, what, how, what does a political yeah. strategist look like in the 2020 pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question, Kev. Uh, obviously, Thank it's a you. lot more calls and, uh, and video calls. Interestingly enough, we're working with, you know, my, my background is I, you know, I make TV ads, digital ads for Democrats running up and down the ballot and for, for ballot campaigns and things like that. We're working on a bunch of different ballot campaigns around the country to expand, you know, expand Medicare, um, reform drug policy, things like that. We're adopting some new digital organizing tools around signature gathering, right, because that still has to go on to get measures onto a ballot. So how do we involve technology in reaching out to voters? How do that, you do that? Who's, who's going to want to sign anything right now? I wouldn't let anyone come to yeah. my door. So it's all, it's all virtual, Kevin, that, you know, it's, it's outreach with ads, you know, online ads tailored to, you know, p- perhaps a model in terms of support for Medicare expansion or drug reform. And it asks, it says, here's the form from the Secretary of State. Can you download this, print it out? Sign it and send it in. Um, so so kind of grab can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt? Yeah. Sure. So what what percentage before the pandemic was was digital and, and getting for signatures and digital and getting someone to download something and and sign it versus what percentage now? If you had to estimate, it's a hundred percent flip uh, oh from you know, in person signature gathering. Um, luckily, there's a lot of races we're working on where the signatures were already gathered. Um, wow. We're coming up against some some deadlines already in terms of because a lot of the state filings are the same for candidate filings as with state ballots as well for November. Um, but 100 percent of that is, has changed where it's all virtual, where you can't go door to door, nor would you want your volunteers going door to door. No. So we're Call actually, out to Wisconsin. You know, you're, you're, you're seeing right now Ed Markey, incumbent center in Massachusetts. There was a store in the Globe today where he might be in trouble. I saw, 10, I saw this. I saw this. Yeah, he's at seven thousand right now, and you know it's any question what the governor AG does in terms of the signature requirements in this new phase that we're in. But that's, on, that's a, a serious problem for the Markey campaign, for example. It's, it's good for Kennedy. Uh, I'm on a text chain with my friend Tammy Haddad and and Greta Van mm-hmm. Sustrin and and another individual, and uh, that was lighting up the text chain. That's that's what I'll say, Kevin. Oh, Wallen, I bet. Democratic strategist, final question for you. What are Democrats saying in your circles about how China, where does China fit in? I mean, one of the things that Sanders and Warren really brought to the Democratic electorate field was a a sharp criticism from an economic standpoint against Xi Jinping. What do you think Biden's message will be in, in, in criticizing Trump, as Trump will likely criticize him on this, but in criticizing China? Does that play into the campaign at all? I think it absolutely does. And you saw... As the pandemic was kind of ramping up, I'll be very quick, you know, the, the vice president in different town halls on the debate stage, really holding President Xi's uh, feet to the flames with regards to this virus, saying we should have had inspectors in the country. We should have pushed the international community to demand those medical personnel in the country. You're now seeing the CIA, other intelligence gathering, really stepping up to actually see how widespread it was in China. But this will certainly be an issue, I think, come November. And to that point, President Trump uh, criticizing the World Health Organization, which he said was unfairly being a benefit toward China. So the latest 
criticism on China now becoming a bipartisan issue. Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist, thank you so much uh, for, for calling in, giving us an update on your job on the state of the race. And, and that fascinating development about how online signature or signature gathering has now gone fully online and the impact that that's having on state and ballots across the country. It's just the times that we live in. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the line is Guy Snodgrass. Uh, he's a, a longtime friend of the program. Guy, thanks for calling in. Uh, first, let me get your take from uh, as someone who has worked at the Pentagon. Uh, what is your how do, how has the U.S. response been internationally, Guy, uh, from your vantage point? Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Uh, Kevin, I just want to make sure that I'm clear on your question. Uh, when you say the response, are you talking about our, our overall military readiness posture? Or are you speaking, yes, uh, yes. Let's start with military. With Let's start with military readiness, and then we'll go. We'll go broader. I should have clarified. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me on. It's always great to be with you and to talk about the current events. To your question, I'd say that the military has done overall a very nice job of balancing a lot of demands on their time. You've got, of course, a globally de deployed force. You have uh, members of each branch of the armed forces all around the world as we're supporting active and ongoing operations. So that, and it, on a daily basis, is going to be pretty demanding with the requirements for uh, your time and your attention. And then you throw COVID-19 and the pandemic on top of that. And of course, we've seen the recent issues with the United States Navy that has captured a lot of attention and taken a lot of bandwidth away. So with all that being said, you know, it's a case-by-case -case basis. You're looking at each ship. You're looking at each aircraft carrier at every military unit. You're making sure that uh, they are at the operationally ready state that they need to be. And if, the, if there's that check in the box, then you're good. If you start to see some COVID-19 cases and they start to spike upwards, then you uh, begin to basically sideline that unit or you, or you look to – uh, quarantine those members so that you can keep readiness as high as possible. Guy Snodgrass is on the line. He's the CEO of Defense Analytics, former director of communications and chief speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis, also the author of Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. You mentioned the Navy, and I'm so glad you did because it's something that we haven't been able to devote enough time on this program about, and that is reading from uh, the from Politico, sailor aboard fourth U.S. aircraft carrier test positive for coronavirus, a sailor assigned to the uh, to a, a navy ship or, or an aircraft carrier tested positive for COVID nineteen last week after experiencing symptoms while on board the ship. 
Then you have the other situation uh, that the Navy captain was removed from carrier test positive for COVID-19. Captain Crozier, the Navy captain who was removed from command on the coronavirus-stricken aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt, has tested positive for COVID-19, that according to the New York Times. So, I mean, do you think that the administration and that the Navy has handled this in an appropriate manner? No, absolutely not. Uh, From my time as a director of communications with Secretary Mattis, working with members of the press and with other senior leaders, not only in the Department of Defense, but also within the administration and globally, uh, this is probably one of the worst responses I've seen to a specific incident, largely because it was an unforced error. This didn't need to go the direction it did. You could have easily foreseen a pathway where Captain Brett Crozier, as you mentioned, the former, recently former commanding officer of USS Theodore Roosevelt, a carrier that had a spike in coronavirus cases, was sidelined in Guam, wrote a four-page memo expressing concern about the slow pace at which he was getting help and assistance that that ship needed to protect the health and well-being of his sailors. Uh, It goes viral. The Secretary of the Navy, the Acting Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, relieves Captain Crozier of command. And, and you could have made an argument that it would have stopped right there. It caused concern in the, with the American public. It caused concern with the sailors, the men and women who serve in the United States Navy. But that would have passed. Unfortunately, what you, what you saw was a very ham-handed response where Acting Secretary Modley felt personally offended by the heroes. You know, there was a video that came out of, the, of this crew who were cheering him off and chanting his name as he left. And and Acting Secretary Mobley took offense to that, was concerned by it, uh, concerned by the effect on what he felt was good order and discipline. So he took a 8,000-mile trip to the territory of Guam, walked on the carrier, gave a profanity-laced speech to the crew where he basically blamed the captain and blamed the crew for uh, how things had developed and then just walks off the ship and returns to Washington, D.C. And, and that led to a very... Uh, very political and a very pressurized environment for about 24 to 48 hours. It called a lot of unnecessary attention to the United States Navy. Uh, certainly degraded. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say a ton of, a, t- a ton of, 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 of attention uh, and go ahead. I mean, I mean, but do you, yeah. so he resigns Tuesday and he, I, what I'm hearing from you is, or, or let me, let me ask, do, was it, a, was it appropriate for Modley to resign uh, and was it appropriate for Defense Secretary Mark Esper to accept that resignation? So yes, on both counts. Okay. There, this would have been a leadership, you know, laboratory lessons, case studies for the Naval Academy, for war colleges, for a lot of different organizations could have looked at this and said, was Captain Crozier right in writing this letter, yes or no? Was Acting Secretary Mosley correct in relieving him, yes or no? I mean, and frankly, you could have arrived at a position where you say the captain was right in doing what he thought was best for the health and well-being of his crew. The acting secretary was also correct in relieving him. You know, that would have been on the margins. But when you when you fly to Guam as the head of the United States Navy and Marine Corps, actually, you give a profanity-laced speech, you, you obviously lost your cool, and you've breached the trust with the men and women you're charged with leading within the lifelines of military service. You've also breached the trust of the American public. There's just no way that you can you can remain in that position. And so, yes, it was it was the right thing for him to do to offer his resignation. And Secretary Esper did the absolutely right thing by accepting it. Now, had Modley had a pass along those lines or no? 
Meaning, is this is this out of character for him or no? I think it's out of character for him. I've I've worked with uh, former acting secretary Mobley in the past. He was in many of the meetings I attended alongside Secretary of Defense James Mattis. You know, he's normally a very circumspect, calm type of individual. And I think this is a, you know, like I mentioned, it could have been just a leadership case study. Now it's a, now it's a strategic communication case study that I would right. say, if you're, if you're a CEO, if you're a head of another service or you lead a large, large organization, take heed because this is a great example of how sometimes things can happen quickly. And rather than slowing down and surveying the landscape, talking to some external, advisors who can maybe give you some a fresh perspective you get sucked into your own you know bubble you lose perspective and then you take rash actions because of it and, and as you know kevin i mean i've got a background 20 years as a navy fighter pilot yep. and the first thing you do in an emergency is you pull those throttles back so you can slow down your airspeed you buy yourself more time more opportunity to kind of consider what you're what you're dealing with and how you should handle it the last so to translate it Maryland in at Mach one to translate it for folks who have not heroically served our country, go on a walk. <laughs> these days, <laughs> these days, living in the pandemic, go on a walk before you send that email or that text. Just go on a walk, catch your breath. You know what? We're all in it together, folks, right? But we're not because the because neg- it's disproportionately affecting folks. So I got to stop saying that. It's a tick, a tick, as they say, because it's been proven through the data that underserved communities are getting un- horrifically pummeled by this worse off than, than other individuals. Guy Snodgrass is on the line. Good friend of the program. Uh, he, uh, is, we were talking about how acting Navy secretary Thomas Mudley have resigned. Uh, and just to, to finish this conversation, uh, secretary Esper appointed army undersecretary Jim McPherson as the secretary of the Navy after he accepted Mudley's r- resignation. All right, moving on to a different topic with Guy Snodgrass, who joins us as we await, by the way, President Trump uh, and the daily coronavirus task force briefing. So if I get a two-minute warning or I interrupt you, it's because of that guy. Uh, But what I wanted to ask about is now from the U.S. perspective, dealing with China, because I spoke with Tom Perez today. We heard earlier in the program from a Democratic strategist, Kevin Walling, all week, past two weeks, really, we've had Democrats and Republicans on raising concerns about Xi Jinping and and data transparency. The president earlier today raising new concerns about the World Health Organization, former Vice President Joe Biden, also increasingly uh, raising questions about Xi Jinping as well. From your perspective, one, what did China do wrong? And two, what can the U.S. do to... uh, unify the global community to make sure that it doesn't happen again? Yeah, that's a great question. And and before I answer, I'm just going to say thank you for the two-minute heads up. Um, I never thought in my life that I'd be doing the warm-up act for the President of the United States. That's pretty uh, heady stuff. But, uh, but, but yeah, when you talk we about We don't have a two-minute warning yet, so do you have time? We don't have that two-minute warning yet, but go ahead. So when you think about the relationship not only that we have with China, but that China is seeking to – build with the world, as you and I have discussed on previous episodes, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? So China's been very aggressive in reputation building. And I, and I think what you're, you've seen over the last month in particular is a continual erosion of China trying to build that reputation as a trusted partner. It's been, it's been demonstrated and talked about not only from, from this administration, but from other international allies and partners that 
China was not forthcoming early in the pandemic with information that could have assisted other nations on the world stage, that they have grossly underestimated or undercounted or or underreleased the number of people who've been affected by COVID-19 or who were who were killed by COVID-19. And so and then you also look at the specifics early on where the CDC had not only offered assistance, but had asked for genetic information that could have helped decode COVID-19 earlier, which would have helped our response. So that's those are just pieces of information that I think are uh, damning when you think about China's engagement. Now, switching gears to the second part of your question, what can the United States, what can this administration do to you know, regain, quite frankly, a leadership position on the world stage as we navigate our way through the remainder of our experience with coronavirus? I think the number one thing is to change tack a little bit, because when you look back over the last three and a half years, President Trump has been very hard hitting when it comes to asking allies and partners to step up and do more for burden sharing with Japan and South Korea, for increased burden sharing with all NATO allies. And that has, unfortunately, that's caused some friction. That's eroded some of the trust and confidence that America has built up over decades. So when you get to this point where we are with coronavirus, if President Trump and the administration changes tack just a little bit and says that, uh, you know, hey, we, we, need, we need our allies and partners now more than ever, and we're going to be working collaboratively with you because nothing's more important than getting through this period of time. And, and I think that that olive branch would be well-received in the international community, especially because you have Prime Minister Johnson in England, who has been uh, stricken with coronavirus and is in intensive care. There's just a lot of ways that the administration could extend that olive branch and, I believe, retake a leadership position as we navigate through this period of time. So let me ask you a follow-up then. What does that olive branch look like? Because you've got some conservatives in the U.K. saying that there should be reparations coming from Beijing for the calamity that they've thrown. This is according to them uh, in the global markets and, and, and health, obviously. So what what would an olive branch look like once we finally flatten the curve and beat this thing? Uh, what does an olive branch look like? What can the president do in order to, to, to get back some unification that would, you know, strengthen the alliance against Beijing? Sure. So first and foremost, I think that the president could easily grab onto a narrative that works not only for uh, rebuilding America in the eyes of our allies and partners that would also help to serve as a hedge against China and, quite frankly, would make President Trump look um, – would increase his stock with the American voters as he heads towards the November election. And that is to to concede a little space and say that coronavirus has served as a wake-up call for us all. And now, because of the way that the international community responded, the assistance that America received from our European and our Indo-Pacific allies, allies in the Middle East, uh, if that support exists, you could say, look at all these different countries that were helping each other out. That is the importance of a strong international system of allies and partners. That's a strength that America has and no other nation uh, like China, like Russia, enjoys. Uh, and therefore, it's just renewed his faith in why that's important, and he wants to ensure that America continues to lead that system of allies and partners. And by doing so, he kind of co-ops the negative narrative, and he makes it look like, once again, President Trump, this administration, and America is leading on the global stage. And I think that he has attempted to do that with his narrative that we're fighting a war, that we are in this battle against an invisible enemy, and to be able to kind of grab that mantle, in some respects, 
harkens back to how America was seen as a world leader during the time of World War II. And I know President Trump himself has made those kind of allusions in the past. I think he'd be well served to uh, concede a little ground on burden sharing and demonstrate that he wants to to take that position. You're listening to Guy Snodgrass. He is a good friend of the program. He's CEO of Defense Analytics, former director of communications and chief speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He's also got that great new book, Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. In the, in the minute and a half or so that we have left, assuming that they're on time, which regardless of party, typically they're not. Uh, but Guy, from... Just a final question on the China point. Where do you predict the global community? We talked about how President Trump can navigate that olive branch with allies. and But where do you predict China goes from here post-COVID-19? Well, you know, it's interesting because the last five, six minutes of our conversation has been how does the United States and how do other nations approach China? And there, there are the realities. It's going to take some time to understand about what did China – and other nations and the United States do with our response to, to coronavirus. I think China is going to continue to spin it that uh, this potentially was something that originally originated in the United States, that uh, China was very forthcoming. They were very helpful. They've, they've even had the, the public relations coup, if you will, of sending supplies to other nations and including the United States. So they're, they're going to try and grab onto that narrative. And I think that what the Trump administration in particular, but other allies and partners can do is to continue to hammer away on the fact that China was not forthcoming, that that did not give the world a chance to get up on step with our response, and also pivot to if you have a hard time trusting China on this and you've seen the, the toll it's taken for all these nations and lives lost and people sickened, uh, how can you trust them with your 5G network? How can you trust them as someone designing your artificial intelligence algorithm? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways that you know, if you can't trust China here, where it's so important, there's a lot of other areas that we might want to rethink how much trust we want to place in their system of government. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.